SAFM leading the conversation. The viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On the viewpoint. Good evening, and we are back. And this is your co-host, the most important host for tonight, Leanne Mateus. And we are about to interview Mashina Smima. She's from the Center for Applied Legal Studies. Shima, are you there? Sheena, sorry, are you there? I'm there. Thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful. And thank you for uh, deciding to join us uh, on our lastminute.com. Okay, Sheena, let's get right into it because there's a lot to talk about and there might not be that much time. So tell me what exactly it is that you do at the Center for Applied Legal Studies. Just so short. I mm. head, oh, so I head up the gender program mm-hmm. at the Center and what we really do is strategic litigation, trying to change the laws in the country and the systems in the country to really reflect the rights and the Bill of Rights. Wonderful. And is there a specific focus that you have on women or um, is it just general Uh, on just human rights, which are obviously women's rights as well? Yeah, so my specific program is gender, and that includes LGBTI individuals, Mm -hmm. and we look specifically at violence against these individuals. Okay, so the reason that I was interested and I wanted to interview and I requested that we interview you was Mm -hmm. to talk about the state of uh, shelters for abused women and children in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the story that I saw that was written about a woman who was evicted from a state-owned shelter here in Johannesburg. Yeah. And uh, Kells took the case to court, and the magistrate said there was nothing urgent about it. This woman ended up sleeping on the streets. Um, and then I further engaged you guys, and mm-hmm. you also had informed, spoke about how so many women are actually choosing to return to abusive relationships and to the streets uh, rather than stay in the shelter. So talk us through some of the issues that we are having at our state-owned shelters. So, yes, specifically with this, while we deal with the state-owned shelter, we have huge numbers of women that are being evicted unlawfully. So this means they're being evicted without any proper court process, which is mandated in our country. So these women get evicted Mm -hmm. They have no place to go, so there is only really two options. It's go and live on the street or go back to your abuser. So so we find that a lot of them them are are returning to abusers. And what we have to also remember is we're not only dealing with women that go to the shelter, we're dealing with women and children that Mm. go to the shelter. So you're returning both the the woman and her children to to places of violence, which is the street, Mm. or back to the, the perpetrator. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's just horrific. I'm just traumatized by this. Yeah. So talk to me, what what's happened with this eviction? Why, what's lacking? What needs to happen that the shelters have the prerogative to evict women and children from state-owned shelters? So the shelters don't have the prerogative to do so. They are acting unlawfully. Okay. They, they say that because it is a short-term shelter that uh, the law doesn't apply to them. Mm-hmm. The Constitutional Court has established that the eviction law applies to shelters because these are considered as homes. Mm-hmm. So when the shelter evicts someone unlawfully, they are acting against the law, and this is what's happening at the moment. It is not a lawful act. 
So when they go through this unlawful act of uh, evicting uh, residents that have been placed there, women and children, what do they do in terms of options of placing them somewhere else? I'm just like confused that how Mm. does this even happen? What uh, interaction have you had with uh, our ministers and our MECs uh, where the state shelters fall under, which uh, most of them is the Department of Social Development um, and the Department of Police, I guess, SAPS, who places uh, vulnerable women and children into their shelters? So with regards to are they placed anywhere else, no. They are they are exited from the shelter because the shelter doesn't doesn't like the idea of what's called shelter hopping, mm. which is entirely obvious thing to do when you don't have a home. You're going to leave the shelter to get into another shelter. Uh, CALS has tried to engage on numerous occasions with the Department of Community Safety, which mm-hmm. is the primary uh, department dealing with uh, their flagship shelter. Mm-hmm. At this point, it has fallen into a, a relationship that is non-existent anymore. Uh, we've also tried to to speak with uh, the Department of Social Development. This hasn't really brought about any kind of or any kind of um, action on their part. So we are in a place where no one is speaking or listening to our clients. We're, they they are screaming for justice, and nobody wants to listen. So when you talk about shelter hopping, what, what, explain to me what that means. So that really means, so if you have someone who, is, um, who has left a shelter and they don't necessarily return to their abuser, if they left out on the street, they'll try and go into a different shelter. Mm. So shelters say, oh no, we don't want shelter hopping. But if you're not going to to really nurture skills and give women opportunities um, to be able to to live outside of the shelter in a, in a safe environment, they are going to hop to another shelter. They're going to move to another shelter because they need somewhere to stay. Hi, Sheena. This is Songa Zamabek with the co-host, well, the real host. <laughs> Never mind what Leanne has had to say about it. I'm listening to this conversation, and I think for us to properly understand this discussion, perhaps it needs to be examined on the premise of Khrotboam, that case of 2000 whereby the Constitutional Court truly outlined the meaning of Section 26, the right to housing. And I suppose what attaches to that right is Section 25, right to property, because, I mean, you cannot really separate land and buildings in that sense. No, no, no. Yeah. To what extent, then, is this administrative failure failing really albeit under the caviar of within the state's resources, on, at what level is this failure really an affront to that case, which outlines the socio-economic right of housing, of shelter, of security? And if you really want to go on, because nine out of ten times, these vulnerable women would invariably have families, and especially families with children. Section 28, one of the Constitution, exactly. they seriously impugned the best interests of the child. Let's have a conversation about the constitutional or lack or rather the unconstitutionality of mm. what it is that is now pertaining. So so you're entirely right. So we have Hurtworm and then we have later cases of Glatla in the Constitutional Court, which has, as I said, specifically acknowledged that shelters in our country are considered homes. Hurtworm really built on this idea that people's homes need to be protected, and especially looking back into the apartheid era and having the disruption of 
the family in the home and the living and the property. Mm. We have very strong laws against this type of thing, mm. and they're fighting these laws. The, the Constitutional Court has specifically stated shelters are homes, and therefore the, the um, Evictions Act applies to them. You have to go to a proper process. <sighs> this thing is just so annoying. So, Shina, Shima, the, this is like violence on women all over again. So you remove mm. them from a whole violent, hostile, abusive uh, environment, mm. and then you're placing them in the same environment. So it's like the government is doing exactly that. The government that is supposed to protect us is doing exactly the same thing by just allowing having short-term shelters, throwing people into the streets. It just has to be wrong. And it's just a downright dirty shame, honestly, that you even had to find Kels having to go to the constitutional court. I mean, that is just such an expensive process. I mean, which minister, which government, which MEC can't even sit down um, and member of parliament and see that this thing, it doesn't make sense. How do you take someone who's come and requested safety right from the state you move them into a shelter then you throw them back into the streets without equipping them to move back into there it's just violence it's like our, our state is violence we live in every everything is just violent so tell us what needs to happen Sheena in terms of well, legislation yeah. tell us like what le- legislation needs to change I mean obviously we need to uh, engage um, the ministers, uh, and besides having to go to court all the time, what can we do? So what we, we need to, first of all, is it, it needs to be acknowledged that these are unlawful evictions, and that obviously needs to change, and mm. lawful processes need to happen. Then what we also need is we need, we need actual updated policies around shelters. Uh, the policy, I think, is 10, 15 years old, and it's very vague. So mm-hmm. we actually need proper proper policy around shelters mm-hmm. and we need proper legislation around shelters and finally what I would suggest and it's emerging in other countries is this idea of an, a place for victims to stay after the emergency mm. shelter so it's a long term living facility where you cannot return to or you I mean you don't want to return to the abuser you want to move on from that you have to provide people with living spaces after the emergency shelter and I think that's what we're really missing is this the step afterwards when you six months is up and you get thrown onto the street no you you need more time and, and these women and these children must be moved to a housing a housing scheme after the mm. emergency shelter situation hi Sheena um is it then perhaps a problem of mm. characterization of what a shelter is versus could be currently it is almost seen as okay it's better than where you are so just go and sort yourself out now and then not long before now you can just get on again because i mean we don't really want you here whereas perhaps the characterization and framing of a shelter should be not the end of the process but the beginning of another cycle he has a start albeit under changed circumstances but shelters still have skills still have dreams still have ambitions still have stories at a minimum, there are human beings there. Mm. Can these shelters not be used, if you like, as places for springboarding, socio-economic activities? Because there are no sh- shortage of ideas. Mm. There's clearly no shortage of experience there. There's no shortage of ambition if you were given the fact that they would be there for the mm. most part, not because they wanted exactly, or yeah. volunteered themselves to be there. Mm. Mm. 
And I think that's, that's beautifully said. That's exactly what shelters are supposed to be. They're supposed to capacitate people. They're supposed to help heal people. They're supposed to provide a safe space for people. And, and uh, although a lot of shelters do do this, the one we've encountered is not doing this. I mean, even ideas of capacitating in terms of jobs, our clients have certificates for training that they did that are bogus. They can't use them. They're not real certificates. It wasn't an actual certified course. So you have the wasting of resources and then you have these women that have have put effort into doing this kind of training and then they get told, no, this isn't actually accredited. I'm sorry. So it, it really is this ultimate thing of reviolating mm. re-vi- them and the violence, the continual violence that these individuals are facing, not only from their abusers, from the state too. Yeah, yeah, violence, 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 violence. It's just violence. Um, Sheena, another question. So the process of who runs uh, these shelters it also begs the question because what also happens there is that we have you have your obviously your managers your CEOs that sort of thing there's a certain amount of money and budget allocations that go uh, and large amounts actually uh, that are allocated to the operations of these shelters can you talk to me about that so the, the specific shelter that we've dealt with is a state-run shelter which is actually really not common. I think there's only maybe two state-run domestic violence shelters in the country. Mm-hmm. So other shelters are actually getting money from DSD. So they are non-profit run and then they get money from DSD and they're very underfunded. That's, that's something that must be noted. Mm-hmm. This one is a very different character in that it is state-run. Yeah. It also has numerous international donors and ultimately the money is, is being used for something. We just don't know what it actually is because it's not helping but that's that's a kind of different system that you have you have two flagships okay. uh, shelters yeah, that are run by government mm. so these two that are run by government that we're talking about in particular do they have a board that um or uh, do they answer just directly to the department of social development uh what is the process there so we can also so understand it's, um, everything ends with department of social development it's it's the department's uh, baby, so to speak. It's their project, so they're the ultimate people. Where it would end is with the department. Okay. And how long has it been operating for? I think this one maybe almost ten years now. Oh, so it's been around for quite a while. Okay. Mm. Okay, Shima, thank you so much for your time and um, for coming on to our show. Uh, We'll certainly make sure that um, we follow up on this and that things change because that's what we should be doing. Sorry, Leanna, with no disrespect. I beg your pardon, Sheena. No disrespect to my Mm co-host. I I just want Mm -hmm. to probe this question because I think it's also important in the context of what it is in the investigation uncovered. When you talk about your your mandate, if you like, is not just to women and children, but also to a very marginalized and vulnerable community in the context of South Africa, certainly. That's the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, asexual, and other diverse sexual orientations. Because I think whilst many instances South Africa classifies gender as to men and women, we are fast becoming a society and world that has to consider this critical mass of people who are no different except by sexual preference, if you like, or orientation. Mm -hmm. Your work now, to the extent that it extends to this particular community, can you just give us a scope so that we can, if you like, continue the conversation of broadening our understanding of the social issues that affect and afflict society? 
So when you think of LGBTI individuals, you must think that these are some of your most vulnerable individuals in society. And there's almost an elevated threat. So when we, we've encountered shelters outside of the specific shelter we're dealing with that has um, evicted someone because um, she is a trans woman, and this was just not allowed. So mm. you, when, you, when you think of examples like that, you think of the experience of women and children, and you also you, you imagine the then amplified vulnerability of these groups yep. uh, in shelter situations, in sexual violence situations, mm. in sexual harassment situations, and that's really what, what is happening. It's amplified violence. Mm. And in that sense, I suppose when you talk about amplified vulnerability, children who fit this particular description, who discover their sexuality or who identify as any of these LGBTIQA plus community, mm-hmm. if you like, that sense of vulnerability takes on a completely different dimension because they might be dealing with certain stereotypes that they are in no way able to confront or challenge or to stand mm-hmm. up for themselves by virtue of them being children. Entirely, and I actually think the the kind of field around um, LGBT individuals and, and minors or children is an entirely underexplored field in our jurisprudence or in, 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 in non-legalese. It's an underexplored field in our law. We haven't had many cases that have gone all the way to the Constitutional Court dealing with LGBTI rights generally and specifically with the rights of children. And this is really an area we need to start focusing on because we need the we, we need the realization of rights and we need to stop the discrimination and harassment and, and it, there really needs to be a focus on these individuals and helping to realize their rights yeah and i think you just wrapped that up nicely and so did my co-host who's telling me that i must wrap it up after he just interjected just previously <laughs> sheena thank you so much and i like i liked and i like the fact that the center for applied legal studies um it's a gender thing and you're dealing with human rights because whatever our sexual preference is whatever we agendered or however we choose to live and operate in this life it's a human right to be able to do so um, and we need to fast move into a new era on everything that we do how we do in our schools how we build our toilets how we build places of safety it all needs to change and we need to relook at how we're going to do that given that we are we're in a new dimension now, you know. We've got new people to cater. No, not new people, and that's the wrong word to use. But we are opening up our community to be able to be free to express however it is that they want to live their lives. Thank you once again, and have a lovely evening, and we will be in contact. Good night. And now we're off to a break.